Politics can be dangerous, especially when you're eating Mexican food. Find out why on this episode of Delicious History. Delicious History is a podcast designed to show not just how history has affected food, but how food has affected history. You can check us out at delicioushistorypodcast.com or any of our social media on Facebook and Instagram, which are both at Delicious History Podcast. Feeling generous? Well, we do have a Patreon set up and you can support us there. You can see it at patreon.com slash delicioushistory. Well, sorry. Uh, things have been pretty rough recently. Um, last time I had a break, I mentioned how I wasn't feeling well. And... Um, there was some issues of that sort. Well, it happened again. Uh, this time I did get COVID, so I sounded like a frog for a while. Um, my wife said I sounded pretty sexy, but uh, besides that, really nothing good coming out of that. And then I actually had an injury I had to go to the hospital for. But we are back on track. And so we're actually going to uh, change things up a little bit. Um, I know the last few episodes have been pretty heavy stuff, you know, talking about the end of the world and whatnot. Uh, this time I want to have a little bit more fun, have something a little bit more, something a little more lighthearted, uh, but still important to history. And looking at the statistics of the show, it seems like a good portion of our listeners are not from the good old U.S. of A. Uh, so that being the case, you may not be privy to the guilty pleasure that is the American political theater. Okay, now before we go any further, let me talk back to my American audience. You know, hello everybody, Golden Eagles, hot dogs, all that. Now, you may not realize that our political system in the good old U.S. of A. is a bit of an oddity. You see, in many parts of the world, political candidates really don't have any sort of stage until a relative brief period before the actual election itself, like a few months or even a few weeks before the election. In the U.S., we know that the next election starts right after the last one ended and really begins in earnest about two and a half uh, years before the actual vote. But what exactly do politicians need to do to win votes in the United States? Talk about their platform and show well-thought-out plans to implement their agenda? Yeah, to an extent. But they need to do a lot more than that. They need to show people how folksy they are. So in practical terms, what does that add up to? Well, you end up having well-educated and cultured people having to eat hot dogs in front of crowds of potential voters to prove that they're one of them. Now, as a side note, uh, not only am I a politically neutral person, but I can also see right through most politicians. But uh, I'll try not to color this story with my cynical lens. Something that happened in the 1970s here was the U.S. was in a complete breakdown as far as the public trust of their government was concerned. The 1960s was a time of great change, but with it, the relationship between the government and the governed were forever changed. People began to see the government not as a protector, but as a corrupt machine that could easily take away people's rights if in the wrong hands. Of course, there was the major issues of the Vietnam War, the fight for civil rights, new left and hippie movements, among others. Gone was the post-war optimism of the 1950s, and now came the realism of the late 1960s and early 1970s. Ironically, Richard Nixon, who most people would agree was probably one of the biggest squares out there, found himself in a very popular position. 
He easily won the 1968 election due to Lyndon Johnson being so beat up politically that he didn't even bother to run after a poor showing in the New Hampshire primary, something almost unheard of for a sitting president. Now, the Democrats did seem to have star power with Robert Kennedy as the most likely frontrunner candidate, but he was assassinated in 1968 by Saran Saran. Hubert Humphreys ended up winning the ticket, even though he was a deeply unpopular figure, even within his own party, since he was the vice president of a deeply unpopular president and supported the Vietnam War, even when things were going very poorly and public support had pretty much vanished for it. With all that being said, Richard Nixon just won the 1968 presidential election with his vice president, Spiro Agnew, a former governor of the state of Maryland. This was some of the beginnings of the mistrust of the government that spilled into the 1970s. You see, Richard Nixon only won 43.7% of the popular vote, and Humphreys won 42.3%. And yet, Nixon had almost twice the amount of electoral college votes because of where he won. Okay, now for our international listeners, the electoral college is something that's also very peculiar to the American voting system, with some presidential elections having the winner of the vote having had fewer popular votes than their competitors. Now, I'm not going to get into the details about this since there's plenty of information out there and it would take me forever to explain it. In fact, there was major legislation that was proposed after this election to do away with the Electoral College system with the Bay Seller Constitutional Amendment, but that never went anywhere. Now, one of the important things to understand about the background here was that people in general in the United States just really wanted to get out of Vietnam. They were tired of sending more young men to fight in a foreign country for reasons that nobody really remembered anymore. So Nixon became very popular because not only did he run on a platform of getting the country out of the war, but it seemed like he was actually following through. Although he started a number of programs that made him less than popular among the average American, he was following through with the most important factor for many of his constituents. As a result of that, the 1972 election was an absolute landslide. Going into the election, he had an approval rating of over 60%, and by the time the 1972 election came and went, the map looked like pure red, with the exception of Massachusetts. In fact, he won by the largest margin in presidential election history, with 18 million more votes than his opponent, George McGovern. Again, although he was far from perfect, the country thought that it was more important that he was bringing home troops from overseas and decided to keep him around to finish that work. But here's the kicker. (laughs) See, Nixon was also extremely paranoid, and even though it seemed like the election was going to be like shooting fish in a barrel, he still decided that he wanted to have an edge on the competition. This led to what later became known as the Watergate scandal. Now, in a very, very small nutshell, essentially what happened was Nixon sent spies into the Democratic Party headquarters at the Watergate office complex in Washington, D.C., They were busted, and the investigation that took place not only led to a number of people becoming arrested, but a series of lies and excuses on the part of the president that really destroyed his credibility. It got so bad that even though he was a popular figure up to that point, it seemed obvious that Congress was going to impeach him and then remove him from office. In order to avoid the whole process and save his last shred of dignity, Nixon resigned office on August 8th of 1974 being the only president to ever do so. Now, normally that would mean that the vice president would take over, but that's a funny story. See, Spiro Agnew, who was also in a second term of vice president, 
had already resigned in 1973 due to his own scandal of taking bribes while he was the governor of Maryland. Even though technically Gerald Ford was constitutionally within his rights to take the presidency, the issue is that he had never been elected to national office before. Prior to this time, the highest office he had been elected to was that of a congressman from Michigan, who also happened to be the House Minority Leader before that appointment. Okay, so just to recap, the American people as a whole had reason to lose their faith in their government from the late 1960s, and elected a man to help them get them out of a hole. Even though overwhelmingly voting for this man again, both him and his vice president resigned in disgrace, and now there was a person who is the head of the free world who never received a single vote for either presidency or vice presidency. It's safe to say that public confidence in their government was at an all-time low. And to make things worse, his first act in office was to pardon Nixon. While a lot of historians say that that was probably the best move to get the country back on its path of healing, it certainly didn't sit well with a lot of people at the time. Okay, so great story. What does this have to do with Mexican food? Well, I'm glad you asked. See, during Ford's three years in office after the Watergate scandal, he was very much portrayed as being stupid and uncoordinated. And the ironic thing was that Gerald Ford was actually a scholar-athlete before getting into politics. And a model, I mean, if that means anything. And I know a thing or two about that, being a former aspiring hand model myself. Now, some of this reputation was earned as now we were in an era of cameras being everywhere and watching every move the president made. In fact, Saturday Night Live uh, made a reputation of itself, with Chevy Chase making fun of the president after he fell down a set of stairs coming off an airplane. Um, but, I mean, <laughs> in his defense, I think a lot of people have fallen down those stairs, or at least done silly things on those stairs, right? We could think of uh, uh, Trump walking up the stairs with the toilet paper on his shoe, uh, Biden falling up the stairs like six times. I mean, look, okay, if I were president, my first act would be to not let anybody take pictures of me on the stairs going up Air Force One because, I mean, it seems like everyone looks silly going up and down those stairs. In addition to that, though, in addition to falling down the stairs on Air Force One, he did say some pretty weird stuff, like how he said the Soviet Union would never have control of Eastern Europe on his watch, even though they very much had control of Eastern Europe for decades up to that point. But still, Ford decided he was going to make things right with the American people and legitimately win an election. So he went through the motions, just like every other presidential candidate has in the past, visiting people in their hometowns, shaking hands and kissing babies. Oh, and again, don't forget about eating local foods. You know, going back to that point, never underestimate the power of eating local foods. I'm from Rochester, New York, for example, and every time some celebrity comes to town and eats a garbage plate, everyone loses their minds. By the way, garbage plate, uh, for those of you with a healthy BMI, is a Rochester staple with a base of some kind of fried potato, normally home fries, but they could also be French fries, and macaroni salad uh, with a protein of some sort, like hamburger, hot dog, or even eggs or fish, uh, topped in a Rochester hot sauce, which is like a chili type thing made out of finely chopped ground beef, oil, and a bunch of spices. Of course, there's some variations out there, like people uh, putting beans as one of their bases as well instead of the macaroni salad. Let me tell you, it sounds disgusting. It frankly looks disgusting, but there's nothing like it. Oh my goodness. Anyway, where was I? Oh, all right. 1970s American politics. All right. So Gerald Ford decides to go down to the state of Texas 
San Antonio to be exact. And now he was there visiting one of the sites of greatest pride for Texans, the Alamo. He's getting ready to shake some hands and kiss some babies, like we mentioned before, when someone hands him a plate of food. Now, again, this isn't all that odd on the campaign trail, but what made this plate of food stand out was that it wasn't something you could easily just grab and stuff in your mouth, like a, like a piece of pizza or a hot dog. No, my friends, he was handed a plate of tamales, which he then tried to shove into his mouth. What followed has been labeled as the Great Tamale Incident of 1976. Now, for those of you who are unaware of what a tamale is, it's essentially when you take corn flour, not cornmeal, uh, mix it with fats and liquids, and then put in some form of stuffing and then steam it until it's cooked. Now, what makes this story take its turn is that it's steamed in a corn husk, which is a fibrous material that's definitely not edible and definitely has to be removed before eating. If you happen to be one of those poor souls in the world that doesn't know the pure joy of tamales, and especially if you happen to be a sitting president in 1976, what happens next may come as a bit of a shocker. The man almost choked to death in the middle of a group of potential voters. A veteran CBS News correspondent, Bob Schaefer, noted, Ford, quote, nearly choked. No one remembered anything else about that day, unquote. Thankfully, the president was able to get everything under control and was no worse for the wear. Physically, at least. In his defense, this probably wasn't the best thing to shove in someone's face given the circumstances. Uh, As Lila Cockrell, the mayor of San Antonio at the time, brought out, Ford, quote, just picked up the plate because if someone had given him the plate, the tamales would not have the shucks. He didn't know any better. It was obvious he didn't get a briefing on the eating of tamales, unquote. Regardless of how fair this ended up being or not, the damage was done in the eyes of the public. Republican commentator and former presidential candidate himself, Mike Huckabee, was living in Texas at the time. He told the Sporkful podcast, quote, Every newscast in Texas all weekend long, all they did was show Gerald Ford not knowing how to eat a tamale. To this day, I'm convinced that it was that gaffe with a tamale that cost him the state of Texas. Carter won Texas, and Carter won the presidency, and it may have been a tamale that did it. Unquote. Sure enough, Ford lost the state of Texas and the election as a whole due to the amount of electors in that state. So what does this have to do with our history today? Well, you could say a sitting president losing an election is always something notable, and that in and of itself is historical. Now, if we put on our speculation hats and we really want to stretch it, which wouldn't be a first for the show, we could say that since Jimmy Carter won that election and had one of the most unpopular presidencies of his time, this may have played a major role in Ronald Reagan winning the election in 1980. With Ronald Reagan's presidency came a conservative movement which leads into a major part of the face of politics in the United States today. I guess, in a way, you could say that a single tamale led to the presidencies of two George Bushes, and a Donald Trump. And that's it for this episode. Short, sweet, nothing too deep. This has been Dave Militello, who reminds you that we all write our own history. So make yours delicious. Delicious.